Father, we give you thanks this day for your word. We thank you for the perfection of it and the clarity of it. We thank you how it is all knit together as a single unit. And the more we read, the more we study, the more we contemplate, the more we see that. And so we glorify you today for that. Please help us to understand Grant us eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that believe. We thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It's within Passion Week. It's now early, mid-Friday morning, early morning. The sun does not yet come up. Jesus has spent several hours in prayer celebrated the Passover with his disciples the evening before he had established the Lord's Supper. He taught them what we know as the, all, or the, uh, the upper room dis- discourse, which is John 13, 14, 15, and 16. He had pray- prayed his priestly prayer for them in John 17. And they've, they've moved about a quarter mile to the east to Gethsemane, which is called a garden, a place on the slope of the Mount of Olives where he prayed several times. As we move through the passage this morning, I'm going to establish the setting for you, and then we'll uh, see some of the background information. We'll see the actual moment when Judas betrayed Jesus and Jesus' response to that. And we'll see Peter step up to defend the Lord and hear how the Lord needs no one's help. No one's defense. Beginning at verse 45 then, then he came to the disciples, Jesus came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. The hour at hand is, is not just the hour of his arrest. He's speaking of the hour of his suffering. Um, that gets turned into the hour of his passion, which is not a word that we would use in that way, but uh, in the King James days, that passion had the idea of suffering. It had the idea of pathos, had the idea of Passover. In Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. He gave his life on the cross, of course, but all of these things are necessary to bring that about. For Jesus, his death was not a shock. It was not an unplanned event. There are many in the world today who say that Jesus was simply indiscreet and tactless as a young man. And if he had only learned to be a little bit more relaxed, perhaps he would have had a longer life in ministry. And of course, they simply deny what scripture says, that all of this has been decreed by God down to the smallest detail and the last second. The timing of his death was deliberate. It was purposeful. John's gospel makes at least eight references to the hour of Jesus' suffering. John 7.30 says that they were seeking to seize him, speaking of the Jewish leaders. They were seeking to seize him, but no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. There is no risk of Jesus dying prematurely, suffering prematurely. And we see that he didn't try to run. He didn't try to hide. And on the contrary, he goes forward 
to meet his betrayer. Jesus tells us at the end of our passage why they came at night, why it happened this way. But thinking from their point of view, why would they come to arrest him by night? Well, they're coming in their minds in secret. Judas is leading a large crowd. The next verse will say, armed heavily with swords and clubs. They're trying to take Jesus by surprise. They're trying to sneak up and lay a hold of him, probably while he and the other disciples are asleep, have him in shackles and being frog marched away before anyone knows what's taking place. You can imagine Judas and this large crowd sneaking through the trees. It's a moonless night. It's the middle of the month. The full moon began the month, so it's the middle of the month. There's no moon. They're sneaking through the trees under cover of darkness in the early morning hours when everybody sensible is asleep. They're moving through as quietly as they can. Every time somebody steps on a twig and crunches it, they all kind of cringe. And then they step into the clearing only to see Jesus standing there waiting as though they're late. He's ready for them. Verse 47 says, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12 came up and with him was a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. The other gospels add that that they also came from the scribes. There were guards from the temple, Jewish guards from the temple. There were Roman soldiers there. There were people there from the Pharisees. Everybody wanted in on this. He who was betraying him had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. Judas is just not their guide to the place. He's there to identify who Jesus is. Jesus is just this normal looking man dressed like a Galilean asleep, they think. How would they pick him out in the middle of the night? But Judas was one of the disciples. He would know him and be able to go straight to him. What we need to connect in our minds is Jesus' words in verse 46, get up, let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And verse 49, where Judas immediately goes to Jesus to betray him. Verse 47 and 48 are exposition. They're explanation. There wasn't a three-minute pause. Judas steps into the clearing can almost imagine it in my mind. Jesus says, get up, let us go. The one who betrays me is at hand and turns to greet Judas or turns to see him. Judas immediately then went to Jesus, verse 49, and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Uh, Kisses were not reserved for close friends or family. They were a common greeting of the time. They would be like a handshake in our time. There's still parts of the world that do this. When Linda and I were in South Africa, uh, we, we were told friends, when they meet, kiss. They kiss on the lips, the men too. But they all know you're not here. You're not from here. So nobody will kiss you. And I said, well, okay. I'm not sure how I would respond to that. <coughs> Greetings, Rabbi. Judas gives Jesus an honorable greeting in the most dishonorable way possible. Psalm 12.2 is not a prophetic word about Judas, but it applies. They speak worthlessness to one another. With a flattering lip and a double heart, they speak. Proverbs 26.28 describes it too. A lying tongue hates those it crushes. And a flattering mouth works ruin. That's what Judas is doing. He is there to flatter with a double heart. He is there to crush. 
He is there to ruin. You know, Judas, when they emerged from the trees into this clearing, wherever Jesus and his disciples were, Judas could have stopped at the trees and said, over there, he's the one over there. The guy next to him with the gray beard, graying beard, that's Peter. The young guy who's not old enough to shave yet, that's John. Jesus is in between them talking. And Judas could have disappeared back into the trees and just let them go get him. But he doesn't do that. He wants to be the point of the spear. He wants to be the one delivering the blow. There is hatred within this man, along with greed. Jesus makes it clear that he's not fooled, though. He says to Judas in verse 50, friend, do what you have come for. There are several different Greek words that can be translated as friend. A philos is someone uh, for whom we have strong affection and deep respect. That's not the word he uses. And ankyos is a, a close friend, somebody who's near to our hearts, a best friend. That's not the word Jesus uses. A centrophos is someone who is like, a, like family, like a brother or sister to us. And Jesus doesn't use that word. He uses the word heteros, which doesn't imply any affection at all or close relationship. It's only used three times in the, in the New Testament, by Jesus all three times, by Matthew all three times. And in the previous two times, it's used by superiors in a parable to address inferiors in a way that's polite, but inoffensive, and which makes it clear to the inferior, inferior you have no authority over me at all. The first of those is in Matthew 20. It's in the parable of the vineyard. You remember the story? A man with a vineyard goes and hires workers to work in his vineyard. And he goes through the day, different parts, and hires men. At the end of the day, he begins to pay them, beginning with those who had worked the least amount of time. And when he gets to those who had worked the entire day, he pays them the same amount as those who had worked the least. And they grumble and they complain. And the man says to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no harm. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? When he says friend, he doesn't mean loved one, beloved friend, trusted companion. It's this distancing term. The second example is in the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. A king gave a wedding feast. Nobody he invited came, and so he sent his servants out into the streets to bring in people. And they came in. Verse 11 says, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And then he said to his servants, or the man was speechless, then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So friend, heteros, when Jesus uses it of Judas, doesn't mean we're, we're like brothers. You're my best friend. He's speaking to him at a distance. And and. I would never accuse Jesus of sin because he didn't do that. But as, as insincere as Judas's greeting was, Jesus matches that with distance and calls him friend at the same time. And I think it was his way of saying to, to Judas, I've always known who you were. 
I've never been fooled by you. I've, I've always known that you had no actual honor or respect for me. And I've never had affection for you. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus at the end of verse 50. And they seized him. Two different phrases there, meaning that they grabbed him and they bound him. They gripped him tightly. They grasped him so that he could not escape. And, of course, he's not going to escape. And then behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. All four gospels mentioned this, and that's interesting. The synoptic gospels often have the same information, but John tends to focus on different issues within the ministry and life of Jesus, but they all pick up on this. The other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, simply say one of the disciples They don't name him, but John 18.10 does name the disciple as Simon Peter and says the slave's name was Malchus. Now, it's interesting to me that they did that. Perhaps uh, since Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written when Peter was alive, maybe they just didn't want the people in the church thinking that Peter had been violent. Just leave him unnamed. That's a possibility. I think a stronger possibility is there's no such thing as a statute of limitations in that day. And that if they had said Peter attacked an official carrying out his duties, anybody at any time could have charged him with that. And so they just protected him. By the time John writes his gospel, Peter has died. And so he names him. It's interesting, though, that the, that the others don't name Malchus, and John does name Malchus. And he doesn't say this, but maybe Malchus, through this event, came to faith in Christ. And people reading this might say, oh, we've heard of him. That's his story. So the wicked men take a physical hold of Jesus so that he could not escape. And again, he had no desire to escape. In fact, these men are kind of a protective guard to make sure that Jesus makes it safely to the trials. And they escort him to his death on the cross. Peter explodes into violence. He slices, slashes at Malchus, cuts off his right ear. And then Jesus tells him to stop. Put your sword back into its place for all who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Therefore, how will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Jesus makes two points that I think we need to understand. The first is important and that is those who take up the sword will die by the sword. The gospel is never meant to go forward by violence and with violence. Jesus did no violence. He harmed no one. The apostles were not to execute any kind of violence. If you remember the story from Luke 9, James and John, uh, when when Jesus had been rejected in a city, James and John said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to consume them? And Jesus just shook his head. Linda's got a theory that Jesus had a flat forehead because James and John and Peter were always having him go, guys. It's not that the wicked don't deserve destruction. They do. And they'll receive it. 
but not at the hands of us, not at the hands of the church. When Jesus tells us that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, it's not because in the end, everybody's going to be okay with God. It's because as Paul says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. We don't need to defend ourselves. We don't need to use violence to protect ourselves as we carry out the ministry of the Lord. Our God will deal with them. And the sense of loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, if we really understood for a moment the nature of hell, we would beg our worst enemies to repent and believe. The second point Jesus makes, I think, (coughs) is even more important. And that is simply, Jesus doesn't need Peter and his little sword to defend him. He doesn't need all the disciples to defend him. He doesn't need the crowds in Jerusalem for Passover to defend him. The father had placed more than 12 legions of angels at his disposal. A Roman legion was comprised of 6,000 infantry and 700 mounted soldiers. 12 legions would be more than 80,000 angels. Isaiah 37, 36 says one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in a single night, which means more than 12 12 legions of angels could have defended Jesus against 15 billion attackers. That's almost twice the current population of the earth. He didn't need Peter to come to his aid. He didn't need him. But to be honest, he didn't need the angels either. John writes this about Jesus' arrest. This is in John 18. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, to those coming to arrest him, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. Then he said to him, to them, I am he. He didn't use a reflexive pronoun there. He simply said the Greek words, ego eimi, which in Hebrew would be Yahweh, I am. And when he said, I am, they drew back, which is a nice way to say they lurched back, and they fell to the ground. So the sense here is a sudden violent fall, as though they were shoved back. They didn't fall to their knees in worship. They fell backward. Therefore, he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, probably now in a state of shock, "Um, Jesus the Nazarene? And Jesus answered and said, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these, let my disciples go their way. In order that the word would be fulfilled, which he spoke, Matthew says, of those whom, or John says, of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. That's from John 17, verse 12. He says to the Father in that prayer, which he uttered just hours before this, of all those you have given me, I have lost not one except the son of perdition, Judas, that the scripture may be fulfilled. Jesus didn't need Peter. He didn't need the angels. He was fully capable of defending himself. And the truth is, if he had not willingly and voluntarily gone to the cross, all the powers of the universe could not have forced him. He was immovable. 
The episode ends with Jesus speaking to the crowds in verse 55. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs against me to arrest me as you would against a robber? The word robber that he uses there isn't, isn't the casual thief. It speaks of a violent insurrectionist or rebel. Not a zealot. The zealots were a political group that wanted to band together militarily to throw the Romans out and establish a lawful government. The robbers, the insurrectionists, just wanted to watch the world burn. They used violence. You could call them anarchists, I think. They didn't want any order. There are already three robbers in custody. Two would be crucified on either side of Jesus. One of them was named Barabbas. Pontius Pilate was so reluctant to order the execution of Jesus on the cross that he said to the Jews, you have a tradition that on Passover, I release a criminal. Who should I release? Jesus or Charles Manson? Jesus or Ted Bundy? Who do you want roaming your streets? And they said, Manson. And so Jesus died on the middle cross, the one that had been built for Barabbas. These men were dangerous and violent. And this large group came in the middle of the night, heavily armed, as though that was Jesus. But he he says, every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. You could have come to me in the middle of the day anytime you wanted. Less drama, less sneaking around. You didn't need anybody to identify me. So why come at night? From their point of view, from their planning, I think it's because they could sneak up on him. They could make sure that he didn't get away or his disciples didn't put up a a, a resistance. But Jesus tells us why it happened. It was to fulfill scripture. All this has taken place in order that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Well, there are no scriptures that say Jesus would be arrested in the middle of the night by a heavily armed group of men sent from a variety of sources. So what scriptures does he mean? Well, I think he's referring to Psalm 41.9, which foretells Judas betraying him, which he's just done. I think he's thinking of Zechariah 13.7, which foretells his disciples betraying him. Notice what happened next. All this has taken place in order that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Off they went. What Zechariah foretold, what Jesus had said to them earlier in the evening, I tell you, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Peter said, I will never fall away. Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter says, even if I have to deny you, or even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And at this moment, God's decree comes to pass. And off they go. Off they go. 
It's not that there was no threat to them. The Gospel of Mark says that that uh, a young man named Mark, who could have been Mark, um, was grabbed and he, he wriggled out of his robe and ran away naked. So it's not that they were just passive toward the disciples, but Jesus defended them. He didn't need anybody defending him. Jesus, well, Judas, the son of perdition, was lost. Jesus protected the others, even as they fell away. I'm going to point out to you in a few minutes when we come to the Lord's table that in verse 26, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and giving it to the disciples, he said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and gave thanks. He gave it to them and saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he did that before they fell away. And he also said, but I say, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you. Knowing that you'll fall away. Knowing that you'll run. Knowing that one of you will deny me. We are saved by grace through faith, through the work of Christ alone. As we bring this home, I want to touch on four points. First, And first and foremost, Jesus came to die for sinners. He wanted to die for sinners. He was eager to die for sinners. He was glad to die for sinners. Hebrews 12.2 says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross where his life was given for the sake of forgiving sinners. He delights to forgive sin. And when he died for me, he died for every sin that I would ever commit. Even the ones I, I don't think are sin. Even the ones I haven't committed yet. Even the ones that might be a year or five years or 10 years or 20 years in the future. He died for all of them. All of them. All of my sins have been covered by his blood. None have been retained. Confession as, as we take time for confession in, in each service, confession is not how we get forgiveness as Christians and how we're resaved. Confession is an acknowledgement that we have been saved and we have been forgiven. There's a reason why we're not supposed to go through our lives with a fine tooth comb and look for anything that might remotely be considered a sin. But rather, we are to confess the things that we know to be sins. Why? Because they're barriers in our hearts to the Lord. And we don't want to go to him with those things. We're ashamed of them and we're embarrassed by them. And we feel like they stand in the way. And when we go in confession every single time, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we never need to be afraid that we won't be restored to a right relationship with the Lord. If our hearts condemn us, 1 John 3.20 says, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. Our faith is in him, not in our faith. Our faith is in him, not in our faith. We are not saved by our faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Second, it's, it's pointless to try and pretend with Jesus any more than it was pointless for Judas 
It's pointless to try and pretend with Jesus. He knows who we are far better than we know ourselves. He is always superior. We are always inferior. We always come to him with empty hands and on our knees. And since he knows everything that there is to know about us, we may as well be honest and just confess it. Confess the things we don't even want to admit to ourselves. Confess the things that that we don't want to tell anybody else, no matter who they are, of what we've done. Confess those things. He knows. He knows. He knew when he gave these men the bread and the cup what they were going to do. And he gave them the bread and the cup. That's love. That's grace. And it's not because he felt sorry for them or because it was some kind of an emotional thing. It's because he knew by his power, by the power of his blood shed on his cross, he was going to save and transform those men. They were already his. Third, none of the men who came to arrest Jesus that night thought he was anything important or spectacular. They were simply sent to arrest him. He certainly didn't look any different. He was dressed like a Galilean. He was just a man. As far as they were concerned, they needed somebody else to point him out. He wouldn't have stood out in a crowd of Galilean men. He wasn't shiny. He didn't didn't have a halo. He didn't glow. His clothes weren't a special kind of white that nobody else had. They were obviously right about him, that he was a man, but they were obviously wrong as well. Jesus was not just a man. He was and is Yahweh, the great I am. And when he spoke his name, they were driven to the ground as though angels had felled them. Well, by the same token, no unbeliever looking at the gospel today ever says that's unique, that's special, that's different. They all say, oh, all religions are the same. Oh, it's all the same. Oh, you have your view. I have my view. I sat next to a man Thursday night at the jail who, uh, when, as I was sharing the gospel from John 3, you must be born again. He said, oh, reincarnation. And I said, no, not reincarnation. The Bible says it's given once to die, and after that comes judgment. There's no recycling. There's no coming back. And for those who put their faith in Christ, they have forgiveness and eternal life and adoption from God. And for those who reject Christ, they have eternal torment in hell. And he said, well, that's not my God. And I said, I know that. I know that. And he just kind of continued to go back and forth. And after a minute or two, I finally said, there's one reason I do this, truly. And that is to proclaim the gospel so that when you stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, If I happen to be there and I hear what I said, what I said was the truth. And you stand condemned by your own actions. I'm not here to try and convince anybody. I don't have that power. I wish. I wish I did. I told them that night, if I had a special phrase, if I had something that I could do that would change your minds and change your hearts, I would do it everywhere. But the gospel which offends so many... And amuses so many is the power of God for salvation. We're told in in the book of Romans that that Jews are offended by the gospel. He's the religious type that's offended by the gospel. He has his religion. He has his view. Oh, and by the way, every human spirit is a holy spirit. 
as I'm sitting next to a man who's done unspeakable things and is facing prison for that, those things. He believes his spirit is a Holy Spirit. But there's just no way to convince them. They see the gospel as being like everything else. How do you know when you're dealing with someone who's elect? Because when you share the gospel, it's drawing them. They hear it and they recognize the power of God in it. Whether they're ready to believe that moment or not, they're not mocking. They're listening. The Lord may not bring them for years, but they recognize that it's not just human religion. The, the final thing that I'd like to point out to you is, is uh, it's kind of a two-parter. The first part is I think Judas felt completely vindicated by these events. Here he comes up to Jesus to betray him. And Jesus calls him friend using the, the least powerful word there was for calling someone a friend. And Judas feels completely vindicated in betraying him. See, I was right to do this. He sees, Judas sees that these men step forward and they lay hands on Jesus and they grip him tightly. He's not going anywhere. They've probably got him shackled. And then the disciples flee. All those guys who kind of looked down on Judas and talked about him behind his back, he knows that, right? Because that's how a sinful heart works. He's just completely vindicated. I won. I think that's why he didn't just point Jesus out from the edge of the trees. I think he wanted to look into his eyes while he betrayed him and win. And he thought he won. But what distinguished Jesus' disciples was not their cowardice when they ran. It was their faith when they returned. It was not the fear. It was not the panic that took over. It was their faith, their trust in Jesus. Later on, the Christians in Jerusalem would begin to face heavy persecution. And most of the church abandoned Jerusalem for other places like Antioch that's in Acts chapter 11. But most of the apostles stayed. They stayed in the place, the one place on earth where they were the most hated and most recognized and most known. They were the same men who ran, but they had learned of the faithfulness of God. They'd been filled with the spirit of God. They'd been transformed. So all of this is true for us. We are going to fail. We're going to face moments when fear takes over, when panic takes over, and we just, we just run. When I was, I don't know, 17 or 18 years old perhaps, I, I was going to do a day job, and I was going with a friend, and uh, we were in his dad's van, and my friend didn't have a driver's license, so I'm driving this old, old, rickety, beat-up Chevy panel van, and uh, morning rush hour traffic, heavy traffic but moving fast, the engine dies in the, the third lane over, and we're just sitting there, and cars are zipping by either side. And I said to him, you look out of your mirror, and the second you see an opening, you get out of this thing and go. And I looked up in the rearview mirror, and I saw a guy change lanes into us and hit us and knocked us 100, 200 feet. It started the engine of the van. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what that says. I had to turn the engine off. Two or three times after that, 
um, in the years following, I'd be sitting at a stoplight minding, minding my own business, and somebody, I'd look in the rearview mirror, and somebody would be charging up behind me, and the next thing I know, I would be on the other side of the intersection. Because fear took over, panic took over. That's what happened to these guys. But the Lord restored them, and he restores us. We are not distinguished by our sin and our failure. We are distinguished by the grace and mercy of God that keeps restoring us and keeps strengthening us and bringing us back. Bringing glory not to us, but to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 